Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 13th, 2017, and this is episode uh, 2043 of the Survival Podcast. It is an expert council Q&A show, because that's what we do on Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it is time for the expert council Q&A. Here's what I have on the docket today for you for a pretty good uh, grouping of the expert council. How to actually get it all done as a homeschool parent from Mike and Sue Laprise. Understanding the true concept of value and in investing with John Pugliano. Determining a use case for an altcoin with Brandon Todd. Finding a doctor you can trust that will be open to alternative things with Gary Collins. Knowing a good value in kitchen knives from Patrick Rohrman. Understanding and dealing with glaucoma with Old Dog Bones. CB radio for for remote areas, but places that have a lot of trucker traffic, like logging activity and things like that. CB radio for that, you know, kind of a backup communications method when you are in those areas. And considerations between gold and silver and cryptocurrency from me, myself, and I, Jack Spirico. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take 100% focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics. Homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it. That type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons. But there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. All right, we do not have a year that was the episode today. I am actually speaking to you from the past, even if you're listening to it, uh, this show, the day that it came out. I am probably out bouncing around in a boat right now, uh, taking my new boat out for its maiden voyage. Probably not doing a lot of fishing today, just learning about the boat, how to use it, what, what maybe I need to add to it, things like that. I don't know, maybe we'll pick up a fish or two, but actually yesterday, which is today for me, Thursday, I did two shows in the same day, which is kind of a hard thing to do, but but I did pull that off. Uh, so because of that, me getting out ahead of them, uh, neither Ben nor David had a submission in for the year uh, uh, of the episode, which would be the year 26. They fill that in. The link will be in the show notes, and you can check it out for yourself. I'm sure they will get caught up with that in the future. So with that, let's go ahead today and just go straight into your calls. Um, 
I have the first or your questions for the expert council. Uh, the first one I have today is for Mike and Sue Laprise. You can see it's the same day because I'm just finished a call show and now I'm doing an expert council show, so I'm a little bit out of time here. But uh, I'll try to get that timing worked out for you as we progress today. Anyway, this question is for Mike and Sue Laprise, and it is on um, as a homeschool parent trying to get it all done. Really great answer that they have for this one too. So with that, Mike and Sue, take it away. Hi, Jack. Today's question comes from Karen from Virginia. Karen's question is this. How do you get it all done? Details. I'm a stay-at-home mom and new to the TSP community. My husband and I have four children, ages 5, 3, 1, and 5 months, as well as six chickens and a dog. Our first year of homeschool was interrupted halfway through the, with the birth of our fourth baby. Part of me wants to throw in the towel and send our oldest to public school next year, but the more I learn, I just can't. Anyways, do you have any suggestions on how to get it all done? I'm struggling getting everything done, and I'm just reaching out for help. So Karen, you have to answer this question. What do you mean by all? So there's this fallacy, and a fallacy is a mistaken belief, especially one based on unsound arguments, that uh, government schools, that children are learning from 8 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon. And so that fallacy of time was addressed in episode 1992 by Gregory Cecil, who was a public school teacher, government school teacher, and he would say that in his classes, the students learned about 10 minutes per hour. So... Ask yourself this, could I do one hour a day, three days a week, year-round for my kindergartner? Math and phonics in that hour, three days a week, and then you fill the rest of the time with the fun stuff like your chickens. Remember, there's only 180 days around that in school, in the government school, so you have even more time because you're stretching it out. But the most important thing you're doing is learning how to learn. So in your question, you said, the more I learn, I just can't. And when you're talking about sending them to government school, you just can't. So we would say, don't. Yeah, don't. You want to raise free people. You want to raise a child who's free to live and enjoy life. So the other thing that happens at public school in their time crunch is the intercom system going off and then the rally, you know, say no to drugs and the Police dog is in, so you all have to go see them. And all that disrupts their learning. So you keep control of that for your own child. So the next fallacy is the fallacy of structure. So one of the keys is the school calendar. So at the end of each school year, quote-unquote, there's a three-month break for the summertime. And that's great for the teachers. It's in their best interest so they can have a summer job. But after three months off, then you have to work at getting the students reengaged. We take off one week at a time. And the next fallacy is levels. What is a level? What is a kindergartner? What's a first grader? What's a second grader? And I would say don't compare your child to others. Compare your child, their progress over time. So you ask, can I create my own structure? And the answer is yes, create your own structure. And we'll help you with that. Okay, so in that structure, one of the fallacies in government schooling is about the health and behavior of the kids, that it has to be managed through medication. But 
we're not designed to sit and wait and be quiet all day long for hours at a time. We're designed to move and have energy. So ADHD is an unscientific diagnosis, and we don't need that. Your child doesn't need that. So homeschooling is not that hard compared to sending your kid to government school. And I would encourage you to find a really good mentor, somebody who's homeschooling that can help you and really be honest with them and let them see into your life. So it's way easier if you have a good design and you yourself are ready to keep learning. So let's talk about design. So it begins with prioritization. We start with our annual calendar. So the beginning of the, the year, during the Christmas holiday season, Sue and I sit down, we have a big whiteboard and we have a big calendar and we plan out our year. And so it's based around the holidays and based around the seasons. Um, years ago, we, we were active in lots of groups, so church and scouts and even homeschool co-ops. And eventually what we found is they all get sucked into the government calendar and following the government school year. And so several years ago, we started listening to Jack. And in that process, we decided to hell with the government calendar. We're doing what works best for us. And what works best for us is freedom. So having a baby, one of the things we would say is purpose to take a month off when you're having a baby. Still read stories to your child, but make the events in your life life lessons. Okay, so we've been homeschooling for about 27 years, so we have a lot of experience. But our days almost always go like this, and this is for a lot of years it's gone like this. I get up at 5.30 in the morning, and the kids get up at 6.30. And don't let that be an excuse to not homeschool because I have friends who follow basically the same schedule. We use the same curriculum and they don't get up till nine in the morning and they stay up much later than me. So you're picking your own pattern. I'm just letting you know what we do. So I have a four, five, nine and 10 year old that I'm homeschooling right now. We get up in the morning. We start our chores, math, piano and breakfast. When everyone's done with chores, we all eat breakfast. If you finish your chores early, you get on your math or piano, depending on who's on the piano. When you finish those four things, you have free time until everyone's done with those four things. The younger you are, the faster you finish. And then, well, generally, I should say generally. And then after that, we come back together and we do phonics, writing, and reading. And then you have free time to do an activity or a project that you like. And we eat lunch at noon almost every day. And mostly because I have a little town crier who's, you know, constantly telling me what time it is. Mom, it's 12 o'clock, it's noon, it's lunch. And so we're, we're pretty standard. Then our afternoons look very different from each other. And a lot of it depends on the season or the weather. If it's hot, we're inside. If it's rainy, we're inside. If it's nice, we are outside. Even if it's hot, we're swimming. And then we alternate in the afternoons with history and science and other fun things. We do YouTube Tuesday where we look up fun stuff on YouTube and then that's usually three days a week. We have a really steady schedule of staying at home and getting a lot of schoolwork done. And then we take about one day off a week to go on a field trip, which is part of our education. We are learning there, too. And then we have a co-op that meets here at our house on Thursdays, and we have friends come in and have piano lessons and recorder lessons, and we just went and played with the symphony. So a lot of fun things but only three really solid days of school where we're working really hard at staying on a consistent schedule. Then um, I tell my kids we're having a break from Thanksgiving to New Year's because we take time off from the normal history and science and we fill it with really fun Christmas things. 
Christmas stories and crafts, and I have a really cool spreadsheet that you could、um, copy and make it your own, and use put your books and stories and movies that you like into that with a lot of fun crafts. And they don't know they're doing school. They don't know they're reading, and I'm checking that and making sure they're developing in that process. They're just having fun Christmas stuff. We do the same thing in the summer. We have eight weeks. We do Dr. Seuss. And we have friends come in on Thursday. We're still doing math. We're、um, I have games and prizes developed for them to read, and we really focus on reading in the summer and doing a lot of fun stuff. So it's really not that complicated once you have a pattern, and it's just developing that pattern over time. But I know you're thinking, okay, so what about all that stuff like? I have to keep all four of these children safe. I have to feed them a lot of meals during the day. I have to make sure my house stays clean, and then we have to get rested and sleep at night. So developing those foundational habits for those happy daily patterns is really important. And my mom was a preschoolers with disabilities teacher, and while she was doing that, I learned just watching her and hearing about her kids how comforting it is for a child with disabilities to have this consistency. And I tell you, it works for kids without disabilities. What, knowing what you're doing next is a really great way to keep kids engaged and following the pattern that you're developing. So, Karen, you may have to listen to this more than once. I spent years working in the discipline of process improvement, and as our life changed, adding more kids, we would have to revisit certain things that weren't working so well. So, we would ask ourselves these questions: What's working? What's not? Is what's not working necessary? And if it wasn't, we'd say, okay, we got to take that off our plate. If it was necessary, then we would say, what do we have to change to make it work again?、And、then I would say, rinse and repeat for the next twenty years. So use the freedom you have to design the family, the home, and the learning adventure you want to live. This has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. For the expert panel, back to you, Jack. Fantastic answer. And when you listen to that, you realize that a lot of people that say, "I wish I could," you can, you can, if you really, really want to. I'm not saying it's not without sacrifices, but <clears throat> the more I look at the way. That things are are going in the government school system, and that's what. Remember, don't call it public schools. You know, Albertsons is a public shopping store. It's privately owned, but it's public. anybody can go there anytime they want and 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 do business there. You can't just walk into a school. You can't just go there. It's not public. It's government, and you can't leave. You can't leave if you're in there and you don't want to be there. And if you don't show up, unless you've set yourself up with homeschooling. Those are the people out to get you. Don't tell me it's public. It's government. It's it is basic. I, I believe that the public education system, government education system, breaking my own rule there, has turned into an ex- extremely minimum security prison system. That's what it is with a work release program. That and, and like you know a three month、uh, probationary period every year until you 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 get out of it after thirteen years. That's what it's become. You can tell me that it's not, but well, I'll just tell you to take a look at what's going on there. And、uh, man, I've talked to a lot of people with you know diplomas that aren't exactly very smart either. So don't tell me they're doing a great job.、Uh, 
next we have, uh, basically this is like a ton of questions mishmashed together in one for John Pugliano when he boils it all down to va va value. So, John, take it away. Hey, TSP listeners, for our financial question today, I'm actually going to try and answer four questions. And these are actually all totally unrelated in terms of the questions, but they all come down to value. And kind of the point I want to stress here is that when you're making any type of financial decision, it always comes down to value. So our first question is from Reed, and he asks, what metrics do I use to evaluate ETFs? Well, when I evaluate an ETF, I'm looking at almost the exact same things that I look at when I'm looking at an individual stock. An ETF, for those of you who are not aware of, are exchange-traded funds. They're very similar to mutual funds. And one of the things that I don't pay a whole lot of attention to on an ETF that I would on a particular stock is the price-volume action. Not going to go into a whole lot of detail on that right now, but I just think that watching the inflow and outflow into an ETF just isn't as valuable and doesn't tell you and convey as much information as it does with a specific stock. But other than that, I'm pretty much looking at all the other metrics, which would be, you know, how do I think it's going to be favored with short near-term trends? So I'm looking at things, you know, situational awareness. I'm looking at what's going on in the U.S. economy and the global economy. I'm trying to figure out over the coming weeks and months how that will affect the particular companies that are in that ETF. And then I'm also drilling down and I'm looking at fundamentals. And that's where we get to the value part of it. On a short-term basis, the market is very irrational. But over the long term, the stock market is very efficient at determining value of specific stocks, and it really all comes down to profitability now and in the future. Now, the trick there is in the future, because we all know what a particular stock's value is today based on their past earnings, but what none of us knows for sure is what the value of that stock will be based on their future earnings. You know, Apple's had a great run for the last 30 years, particularly over the last 10 years with the success of the iPhone. But is that going to be the case in three years? Well, as many people want to keep owning and upgrading and buying new Apple phones over the next three years like they have over the last 10. Well, we don't know. That's the uncertainty of the stock market. And that's why over the long term, prices go up and down because our assumptions of future valuations, future profitability of a particular company may not line up with reality. So getting back to the ETF, I'm going to judge the value of an ETF by the underlying stocks that are held within that fund. And you can do that by simply looking at what the ETF owns. It's no mystery. You can go to you know anything from Yahoo Finance to ETF.com, put in the ticker symbol of that ETF, And if you drill down through the data there, it'll show you the companies that are held within that ETF based on what industry they're in, what sector they're in, what the individual companies are, uh, you know, what the top 10 holdings represent. A website like Yahoo Finance is going to give you less information, just kind of a quick snapshot. A website like ETF.com is going to drill down and show you every company that's owned by a particular ETF, even if there's like 2,000 companies in it. Now, most investors really don't need to know all that granular information. And so that's why I say something like Yahoo Finance is, is pretty good because it gives you a good snapshot. You can get a real good feel for what the big companies are that are in that ETF. 
and generally those big companies are what's going to drive the performance of that ETF. So look at the value of those underlying companies, look at what their price to earnings ratios are. In many cases, you can find out what the cumulative price per earnings ratio for a particular ETF is. I take all that with a grain of salt though because if you check from website to website, you'll see they're very different. That might be because one data is based on forward earnings, the other one's based on trailing earnings. It could also be that a price to earnings ratio calculated for a particular fund, particularly if it's a niche fund or a fund that's invested in emerging markets or you know stocks in China, well, a lot of the earnings and those type things are very subjective and it's really hard to determine a real price to earnings ratio for those more obscure ETFs. So again, I'd take the cumulative price per earnings ratio for an ETF with a grain of salt. Look at the major companies that are held within that fund. What you want to focus on is the value. You're looking for companies in that ETF that you think are going to be having increasing profits and thus being worth more in the future than they are today. Now getting to our second question, it's from Nicholas. Nicholas asks, is it a generally safe investment to purchase a stock that's been spun off from a blue chip parent company? Nick, I have a simple answer for your question, and it's not even, it depends, it's, it has no relationship. And that's because, again, it comes back to value. Just because a company's being spun off from a successful company or even from an unsuccessful company, it has no bearing on what that new company is going to be worth in the future. And so a spin off doesn't tell you anything. It's just noise. It's just static. You have to look at the fundamentals and the growth prospects for whatever products and services are being offered by that new company that's being spun off and try and make your assessment from there. And so, Nicholas, as far as a spinoff, you really can't tell. You have to look at the underlying value of those assets that are being spun off into the new company. Our third question is from Matt, and he's asking about investment apps like Stash and Acorn. These are things that are designed to allow you to put away small amounts of money and invest them and put that to work for you. Well, Matt, I'm really skeptical of that kind of stuff, and again, it comes back to value. I'm not a big believer that putting away $10 a week or $50 a month and investing that in a stock market is going to grow your money any faster than if you simply save that money. And when I talk about saving that money, you got to save a whole lot more than just $10 a week or $50 a month. Look at what it costs you to live. And if you're saying, well, gee, your living expenses are fifty dollars or $60,000 a year, and you're only saving $50 a month, well, there's no way mathematically, no matter how much money you make in the stock market, that you're ever going to accumulate enough wealth to support a fifty dollars or $60,000 lifestyle. So when you're talking about small sums of money like that, my advice is, don't think of yourself as an investor. Think of yourself as a saver and figure out ways how you can save more. Once you've saved the money, then you can start investing it and investing it wisely. And what are you going to look for? You're going to look for mutual funds and exchange-traded funds and companies that have a good underlying value and are likely to be appreciating in the future. Now, last question, the fourth question, comes from JP. And JP is asking if it's a good idea to purchase disability insurance. Well, JP, you're more likely to become disabled than you are to die prematurely. So from that aspect, you can say statistically that disability insurance is probably a good idea. However, and particularly depending upon what type of career field you're in or what kind of job you do, how dangerous it is, disability insurance may be really, really expensive, where for the most part, if you're healthy and if you're young, term life insurance is very inexpensive. 
And although you're not likely to die between, say, ages 25 and 70, there are still about 5% of the population that does. And for those 5% that do, it's devastating to their families. And so I'm a big proponent. I think that everybody with dependents should be owning term life insurance. And I do think it's a good idea to own disability insurance. But it, again, it comes back to value. How much is it going to cost you? And what's the probability that you're going to become disabled? I personally don't carry disability insurance now because I'm self-employed. It would be very expensive. And I have a high enough net worth where I think my dependents would be generally okay if something happens to me where I have to end my career early. On the other hand, when I was in corporate America and I had a cushy corporate job, I could purchase disability insurance through the company plan that was incredibly inexpensive. I don't know, it was something like, I don't know, $10 or $15 a month, and the disability benefits were, you know, pretty nice. It was something like short term for, say, maybe like six months or a year, I could get 80% of my pay, and then long term, I could collect 60% of my pay if I became disabled. So, you know, for, hey, 10, 15 bucks a month, it was worth that. The value is there. So, JP, I would tell you, assess it from the value standpoint. Just run the numbers. See if you can afford it. See if it makes sense based on the coverage you're going to receive. Well, hey, thanks for all the questions. If you'd like to hear more about my stock market commentary or my general wealth building principles, then please check out the Wealth Standing Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. I completely agree with everything that John said. It, it always does come down to value, like it, especially with like the stock. Well, you know, company XYZ has spun off a company, and it's you know company ABC or whatever. Now, I I, I don't care. That's marketing. That's marketing. It, it has absolutely nothing to do with how much faith that they have in that company. To them, it's just a you know they have enough money and enough power to be able to do an I an IPO and 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 raise funds uh, through investors who take all the risk <clears throat> rather than to have to use their existing financing channels. That's how I, that's how I look at it, right? There's some other risk mitigation. There's reasons to do it. It may be a solid uh, a solid investment or a solid um, short term gain potential. But in, in, in a situation like that, you have to analyze exactly what is this company, what is their leadership, what do they do. Uh, I would I would look at the company the same way as if they were not a spinoff. And, and you, in all of these things that people ask about all the time, what is the underlying value? That's that's really to me always the key thing. Next up, speaking of underlying value, we have a question now for Brandon Todd on understanding the use case for a cryptocurrency token like an altcoin, like. Why does it exist other than to just raise money for the company? So it fits pretty well in with the, the, the one that John just did. Brandon, take it away. Hello, everyone. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer a question for the expert counsel. This question comes in from Charlie, where he asks, which cryptocurrencies have a practical use beyond just a means of raising money for a software project via an ICO? Okay, so I think... What he's asking is, you know, we see a lot of these ICOs coming out right now in the Ethereum um, space, and uh, it seems like a lot of them are just just to raise money for some sort of project, and there's no real use case for them right now. Okay, so great questions, Charlie. I think first we should talk about what the difference is between a cryptocurrency and a token, broadly speaking, because a lot of these ICOs that you see right now are what are referred to as tokens, which is different from like a, a whole cryptocurrency. 
So a cryptocurrency in this context is a digital currency or asset that has a native blockchain or relative database structure with its own corresponding node network. Think Bitcoin, Ether, Dash, or Monero, just to name a few. Now, a token, on the other hand, is a currency or asset that is that either anchors to or has a call to a blockchain of which it is not native to. Think MadeSafe, Counterparty, or Swarm City tokens. For example, MadeSafe was created on the Omni Wallet platform, which is much like the counter, Counterparty platform for those that are familiar. So basically, what you can do is quickly create a token with either fixed or non-fixed parameters and issue to whomever you want. It derives its security by borrowing Bitcoin security, which has the most secure blockchain in the world because of the massing hashing power it would take to gain a majority of the consensus on the network or to fool the network, right? So these token transactions pair with a Bitcoin transaction and just hash that metadata into the Bitcoin transaction. So a MadeSafe transaction is just as secure as a Bitcoin transaction as far as immutability or reversing that transaction. This also explains why a MadeSafe address is a Bitcoin address. <clears throat> Excuse me. This can be very confusing for people if they don't understand how this works. Now, on the other hand, SWT, or Swarm City tokens, travel on the rails of the EVM, or Ethereum Virtual Machine, which is just a collection of nodes, like, you know, like the Bitcoin nodes, that execute smart contracts built on the Ethereum network. So basically, MadeSafe uses the Bitcoin blockchain for security, whereas SWTs use the Ethereum blockchain for security. This is the difference between cryptocurrencies and tokens for the most part. One thing to consider about a token when investing is that they are all sort of married together for better or for worse in some ways. For instance, with all these ICOs coming out of Ethereum right now, if we get another DAO situation, expect all these tokens on the Ethereum platform to suffer some in that environment. Live by that blockchain, die by that blockchain sort of thing. So let's talk about the current ICO climate for a minute. You know, I put out a video explaining this on my website, CryptoSkim.com, in a post titled, CryptoSkim BTC Update 6-26-17. But basically, with all of these ICOs right now, the sole purpose of issuing these tokens is to raise money. So expect most of these projects to go dark for a time while they take that money and hopefully develop that promise in the white paper. Okay, so let's face it. Some of these won't work out, and most of them won't be outright scams, but some of these projects will, with untested code will just simply won't be able to deliver and keep, the, keep a customer base long enough before the money runs out. So, so to answer the, your question, most of these ICOs and or tokens, at least in the short term, have no use case whatsoever. Some who participate are just speculating to make a quick profit, while others are buying to use these tokens when the platform goes live later on. Another thing to consider with these ICOs is the fact that a majority so far seem to be going to whales or big investors taking the lion's share of the offering. After these tokens hit the exchange, they dump a large portion to make a quick profit. So a strategy I've been using is sometimes I'll buy some at the ICO and some I'll wait uh, you know, to look for to, to buy after they hit the exchange and I see a big drop from all those whales dumping for a quick profit. So just something to consider. So let's talk about some cryptocurrencies and tokens that have use cases right now, in my opinion. I don't have time to cover all of them, so let's just take a look at a few right now. First, I'll mention uh, BTC or Bitcoin. Bitcoin was the first, so it has what is called network effect. Having first mover advantage, it's still ahead of 
of any other cryptocurrency or token as far as acceptance is a payment. Being a peer-to-peer electronic payment method, it is a payment of choice for those who want to transact without the fear of discrimination based on political or philosophical beliefs. I made an example in another response where I explained how I like to send uh, I like to send Bitcoin to people like Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. You simply cannot do this with the U.S. dollar or any other fiat currency. Well, I'll say the U.S. dollar because I know about the, the politics and the laws in this country because of Executive Order 13694. Here's a great example of using Bitcoin to directly thumb your nose at the U.S. federal government as a protest to their assumed power. Also, because Bitcoin has this massive network effect, it is sort of a gatekeeper, at least for now, uh, as by means to you know to buy other cryptocurrencies and tokens. This is being lessened over time, though, with platforms like Shapeshift that allow you to pay with altcoins and tokens directly. Also, services like Coinbase that allow you to, to buy Litecoin and Ether directly with money from your bank account are chipping away at this Bitcoin advantage so far. Now, Dash and Monero are two others that are much like Bitcoin but have uh, different privacy features, as I've mentioned before. Aside from that, they also have much faster confirmation times, with Dash being almost instant if you select Instant Send on your Dash wallet. Monero is still popular among the EU dark market or onion sites, so they kind of have you know some of their niche things worked out. But outside of being a payment method, not much here with these as far as a, a new unique use case. <clears throat> so Factum is something you can use right now to store your data on a secure blockchain. Factum has also been the first to specialize in this area of titles and deed servicing the mortgage industry for starters. When you purchase factoids, or FCT, you can then trade them for entry tokens which allow you to connect this information to a blockchain or blockchains. As far as tokens, <clears throat> excuse me. As far as tokens go, you did mention SWT or Swarm City tokens. This is an interesting project that has been around for some time. It was originally called Arcade City and was thought to rival Uber and Lyft as a decentralized token-based ride-sharing system. <clears throat> this project was largely abandoned for whatever reason and was rebranded to Swarm City. The new road the new roadmap seems to expand way beyond just ride-sharing, which I think is a really good idea. Now, this uh, new rebranding of Swarm City is still new, so not a whole lot built yet, but there are, there is already an ecosystem springing up. For instance, uh, just one example, there's a guy about 70 miles away from me giving mountain bike tours for SWT, so it is already becoming big enough to be local for me, at least. You know, as more people participate and offer goods and services, SWTs or Swarm City tokens get more valuable, and thus, be, and thus the developers or the S, and the SWT ecosystem will have more capital to build, uh, more infrastructure to make it better. It will be as good as however many people participate in it. That is where the token comes into play. So another token dimension is storage, or S-T-O-R-J. Storage is a token-based decentralized cloud-like storage uh, service, formerly known as S-J-C-X. Now it is S-T-O-R-J. This is because uh, the storage project originally started using the counterparty platform to hash its metadata to the Bitcoin blockchain, but now has switched to being uh, secured on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, mainly, this has been done for two reasons. The token structure of the Ethereum tokens make it easier for the exchanges to list them 
uh, and the high fees associated with the, the Bitcoin transaction as of late make the Ethereum platform more attractive. But basically, you just go to storage.io, and there you click on a tab that says rent your drive, and a different tab that says pricing, you know, whether you want to um, <clears throat> farm and allow people to store stuff on your computer, or if you want to store stuff in their network. So, you know, so depending on what you want to do. I just set this up today. I've been meaning to do it for a long time. Uh, I noticed in the news they switched over to Ethereum. And so I did it real quick on my Linux machine. You know, it took me about 5-10 minutes, and I set it up, and I'm, I'm now farming. So I'll let you know how that goes. So there are a few tokens, currencies, that you can use today. Now, we are going through a huge ICO wave, as everyone has noticed, and I sincerely hope that many of these projects will work out. But even if they do, it will take a little more time for them to, to take this new money and go build what they promise, uh, you know, what they're offering in the white paper. So let's all hope that a year from now, we are, talk- we, are, we are talking about many more new products and services available to us all. Hopefully, we are not talking about a bunch of scams and rockets that blew up on their launch pads. So there you go. There's some examples of currencies and tokens that have use cases right now. There are many more, in my opinion, but we'll have to leave that for another time. Hope this answers your questions, Charlie. Once again, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, wishing you all a great day. Okay, and next up I have a question uh, for uh, Gary Collins on finding a doctor that's open to alternative forms of treatment, etc. And uh, here we go. Gary, take it away. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, answering all your primal paleo health and lifestyle questions, living off the grid and life simplification. All you guys out there who have bought my book, Going Off the Grid, please make sure to leave me a review on Amazon. That is how I help uh, get the book to other people and increase my sales, so I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, today's question is one that I have dealt with personally myself, and it's I've moved very often in my life. And always finding a new primary doctor is a challenge. And finding one in the natural health world is even more difficult. As some of you know what I recommend, I actually split the two types of modern medicine with more uh, naturopathic or ancient medicine. Um, it's it, I like to use a balance. I do not want someone who focuses only in the natural world to do a surgery on me. And I don't want my surgeon to usually be giving me nutrition and exercise and health advice because usually they don't know too much about that. They know how to fix things but don't know exactly a whole lot about diet. And that's a whole issue for another episode or question. The keywords I would look for would be health and wellness clinic. Now, you may get a lot of gyms in that search when you're searching or integrative medical clinic or integrative medicine doctor. Those are some good terms to use. They're over the last five years, integrative medicine, which is a combination of everything. It's kind of what I just said. The doctors are usually traditionally trained, but they have a background also or have done extra education or schooling in nutrition and and all-encompassing health. Another, Some other keywords to look for are ND for naturopathic doctor and OD or D, actually DO is uh, osteopathic doctor. They are trained just like an MD and they go to medical school, same thing, but they choose a, instead of getting the MD designation, they get the ND or DO and it's more more uh, holistic, 
medicine or a holistic approach to, to health and wellness. Yeah, it's a little tricky, and you're going to have to interview these people just like any – even though – it's more natural medicine based or holistic based. There's a bunch of goofy people in those, just like anything in life. So go, go, you know, schedule three, four, go to appointments and get to know them. You know, that's how I've always done it. And once I find a doctor I like, you know, then I'll move forward and set them up as my primary or at least secondary with my primary, maybe being my traditional MD or for vice versa, flipping them around. It really, really does not matter. I hope that helps everyone and keep sending the questions. Uh, they're very interesting and, uh, for, I've gotten good responses about helping others. So keep them coming. Thanks. So next I have a question for, uh, Patrick Rorman on a specific brand of kitchen knife and some sale prices have been put out recently. And, uh, I'm going to let him answer that. I'm going to come back with some additional follow up on it from some research I did. Hey guys, this is Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives with today's Expert Council Question of the Week. Uh, today's question comes from David. David says, my question is for Patrick of MT Knives. I've been considering upgrading my kitchen knives, and I've been seeing some almost ridiculous discounts on Kamakoto knives. I'd like to know if it's a reputable brand, and I'm also curious what your thoughts are on the one-sided edge geometry. Thanks for your question, David. Never heard of this company before, so I did quite a bit of research. They're selling on Amazon and also on their website, and I seen what you were talking about with the steep discounts. This, these knives are retailing for twelve hundred and ninety-five dollars, but I've seen a lot of comments and promotional things for it as low as two hundred and twenty dollars. It appears that that promotional price was a pre-order price, and I don't see that you can still purchase it for that. So my first, uh, I first had some red flags looking at some of the reviews on Amazon. Some of them didn't appear to be uh, genuine reviews, fake reviews. And so I was checking out the one-star reviews, as is always a good idea. And somebody was state, stating that these knives were made in China. And I had to dig pretty deep, but it is on their website. It says uh, these blades are handmade by a select group of ex experienced craftsmen in uh, somewhere in China. I can't pronounce that. So... Uh, these they do say on their website that these knives are made in China, and they've gone through a great bit of trouble to make you believe that these are Japanese knives. Some of my first things that kind of made me question the uh, where they were made was obviously the uh, first review, but they've also gone through a lot of trouble hiding where their company was actually located and everything that they tried to do is to direct you back to Japan. They have uh, a guy, a Japanese individual that is the chairman uh, of the, on the advisory board. And they have another Japanese individual who is client relationship manager. 
neither of these guys are the owners. They're just uh, people that they pulled out to make you believe that this is a Japanese company. So I personally would steer clear of any company that's going to mislead you and try to sell you something that uh, is not. And they've done a very good job of of hiding uh, hiding the facts. So this is a relatively new company as well. I believe that they've only been shipping out knives starting in June or July. And uh, there's, there's just uh, too many options out there to take a chance, especially paying $1,200, $1,300 for a set of knives. The, the reason they want you to believe that these are Japanese knives is because Japanese, the Japanese knives have earned, they've earned the, uh, reputation of being excellent knives. Even a cheap Japanese knife, I'm sure will outperform these knives. So, my recommendations to you would be to steer clear. Try to find a company that has, a uh, a history longer, you know, than this and uh, with more ethical advertising than this. As far as the edge geometry or the blade design, it's a chisel grind, meaning that it's ground primarily on one side. The back side's only touched to knock the burr off. This style of edge geometry gives you a really keen edge. One downfall to it is, is it doesn't want to cut as straight and is designed more for cutting things that are soft like meat, things of that matter. It still makes for a great cutting edge. I know I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. It is worth the money to learn how to sharpen the knives yourself because no matter how good of a knife you have, it will need to be resharpened. Once you've mastered sharpening, you can pick up any knife and have it perform like an expensive knife. There is a difference in quality of knives, but as long as I have a decent knife, I can put a great edge on it, and it's going to perform just fine. Thank you, Dave, for the question. I hope this uh, answers it for you. If anyone else has a question, be sure to send it to Jack. And uh, I still have a backlog of questions to answer, but I'll get them answered and sent in. Uh, also, I haven't posted much about it, but I am currently working on the 04 Limited Edition knives, which is a chef's knife. As soon as I finish them up, I will have some chef knives available for the public. So be sure, if you're not already, to sign up for my mailing list to be informed of when those come available. Thank you very much. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great day. So this is, this is time for me to bring up a great web resource yet again. It's called Fakespot.com. Fakespot.com. Um, of course, you guys know I appreciate you doing you know business through tspaz.com when you shop online and hope you keep doing it. When you're researching stuff on Amazon, man, um, especially when it's not something I specifically recommended, all you have to do is, while you're on Amazon, take the link 
for the the product that you uh, you're looking at. So you just copy, do a Control C uh, of the link in your browser, and then tool over to FakeSpot.com and drop that link and, and analyze it with FakeSpot. And what FakeSpot does is it analyzes the reviews. It looks for you know disproportionate you know. Uh, reviews that, that seem like they're just over-grandizing things other than what people would normally say. And it looks for who the reviewers are. Do they have other reviews? Have they reviewed products in the past that showed to be fake reviews or paid-for reviews or what have you? And it'll give you a grade anywhere from a A to an F. And generally, I feel like if something gets an A or a B, you know, even fake spots not a perfect system, so it could even be downgrading something that's all 100% legitimate or what have you, because you know, one moron wrote a review and it sounds too good to be true, or a couple idiots wrote broken English reviews or something like that, and I don't know exactly what their algorithms are, but it, it seems to be pretty accurate. So, what do you think happened? When I took a link for one of the Kamikoto knives and put it in the fake spot, do you think it got an A? Do you think it got a B? Do you think it got a C? Do you think it got a D? No, friends, it got an F. An absolute F. A big, giant, effing F. Complete failure. And if you read those reviews, you, you can see that. And I wanted to bring that up because that just shows Patrick looked at the reviews and his instincts were right. You didn't hear him mention fake spot, so um, he didn't actually check it against that, but it just didn't seem right. There, There is a double-edged sword in the Amazon review process that's causing this problem. Because I own some problems that have bad fake spot reviews that are good products. They're good products. What it, What's happened is the review system has become so much of a tool for Amazon shoppers that when somebody brings out a new product, they're not even going to get on the board without some reviews. So it's become very convenient to just you know pay some Chinese chop shop or whatever to you know buy 20 reviews or 30 reviews to get on the map. And oftentimes what they'll do is they'll even provide the reviewers a coupon to get the product for free or for very little money in exchange for the review. And what that'll do is you'll end up having a review that says verified purchase. And this is going on a lot lately. And like I said, you have to kind of look at the product in totality against just the fake spot grade. Right now, I have found an awesome little Bluetooth speaker. It's waterproof. I stuck it in the shower to make sure. It sounds great. It's like 40 bucks. Um, I bought it because someone, a buddy of mine had one, and I looked at it, and it seemed good, and it worked good, and it synced really easily, and it was just a great little Bluetooth radio, and I need, or Bluetooth speaker, and I needed one. But when I ran it through the fake spot, it got a D. And I've been thinking about making it an item of the day. Well, on one hand, I know it's a good product. On the other hand, I know they're gaming the system. So I think there's some people that are gaming that system because they feel like they have to. They're making a quality product, and this knife company, though, I, I put these in the category of lying bastards. Um, the company actually is headquartered in Tokyo, Japan, but of course that's nothing but where you register your corporation. 
we have plenty of companies registered uh, to, as corporations in America doing their manufacturing in China. So they've, they've registered the company in Japan, yet they're doing their manufacturing in China. And they absolutely have, I've looked at the site, who've gone out of their way to make it look like this is like master Japanese craftsmanship. And these two Japanese guys that they have on their, uh, their, their client relation manager and their uh, chairman of the advisory board... Um, I, I doubt either one of these guys ever touched one of their knives from a, a standpoint of manufacturing quality control or anything like that. It, it looks like a big scam. And I think what they've, they've probably done is they've come out with this really high price tag. They've bought these reviews. They put these uh, prices down low to get some people to actually buy them. They might even have done it coordinated. In other words, like no one was going to find it or buy it anyway, and they, they, they basically said, hey, you can go get these with this coupon, and it might have been priced at 300 bucks, but the person buying it might have paid absolutely nothing for it. But when you go buy if you don't know what to look for in fake reviews, if you don't know about fake spot, you see this $1,200 knife set with all these high reviews, you have no idea the person never paid that much for it. And if you don't actually read the reviews, you wouldn't know that they're kind of you know bullshit. Uh, this company I would not do business with. I think Patrick is 100% accurate in his assessment of what's going on here, and I would not give these people my money I, I, because it's deceitful. It's not just marketing. It's deceitful. It's absolutely deceitful. Uh, next up, I have a question for Doc Bones on glaucoma. With that, hey, Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the Survival Medicine website, doomandbloom.net, now with close to a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, as well as an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Steve, who writes, Are there foods that could lower the risk or prevent the onset of glaucoma? Background, I have a family history of glaucoma with cupping of my retinas. During the visit to my eye doctor today, my pressures were finally high enough that she proposed putting me on drops. I would like to avoid this if at all possible. I searched TSP for information on glaucoma, but the search came up empty. I was wondering if there were any foods or supplements that would be helpful in preventing the onset of glaucoma. Final note, I have a follow-up visit scheduled in two months, and if there's no improvement, I will start drops. Steve, glaucoma is the type of eye condition which damages the optic nerve, resulting in vision loss, increased pressure in the eye, a family history of the condition like you have, migraines, high blood pressure, and obesity all contribute to the likelihood that you'll get it. Many people note loss of peripheral vision, followed by central vision loss, and then resulting in blindness if not treated. Different types of glaucoma exist, some of which occur over time, and some with relatively sudden onset. The sudden type may cause eye pain, blurred vision, and other symptoms, but most often there is no noticeable sign before the loss of vision is actually noted. Vision loss from glaucoma is essentially permanent. Glaucoma is usually treated with eye drops, as has been prescribed for you. These are usually pretty effective in keeping the pressure in the eye at normal levels. Alternative remedies do exist, such as eye bright, fish oil, vitamin C, ginkgo biloba, and even marijuana, which has been shown to decrease intraocular pressure for at least a while. Dietary changes include spinach and other leafy green vegetables, as well as bilberry and fennel. These are items in your diet that might help. 
The problem is, is that you have increased eye pressures already and anatomic changes that suggest early disease. Discuss the possible alternatives with your doctor as soon as you can, but do something. Vision is precious, as anyone who doesn't have it will tell you. Don't procrastinate. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, have you experienced the joy and satisfaction that goes with helping the elderly? Well, make an old man, me, very happy and yourself medically prepared by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code off anything in the store. Use it to fill those holes in your medical supplies. Um, the only addition I have, because I want to be fully uh, info- informational on this one, uh, as far as it relates to cannabis. Uh, Doc mentioned that, that cannabis uh, has been uh, effective uh, for the treatment of glaucoma, and it has, with a but. Um, and As most of you know, I am a huge advocate for the decriminalization of cannabis. Um, I think that making a plant illegal is lunacy. And, and I think that putting people in jail or, or causing people any negative consequence for growing, smoking, consuming, using a plant is, is just, it's not American at all. It's not an American ideal. Um, I, I frankly don't feel that it's constitutional, to tell you the truth, because it's the government interfering with your right to, to your own body, and it, it is not in any way something we would call a controlled substance, because you pull it off the plant and there it is. It, it grows wild. I, I think our founders would, would be headed to the, you know, heading to D.C. with AKs. Um, for a lot of things, but I think that would be one too. What? They told you you can't have a plant? Time for, you know, Revolution 2.0. I'm serious. So, I, I, I'm not putting down cannabis for medical use, and I'm not putting down cannabis from a standpoint of being a valuable plant that could be used for many things. However, it is a very poor choice for the treatment of glaucoma, unless you want to be high all the time. Because glaucoma is because of the, the, the added pressure in the eye. And if you smoke some pot, right, hey, pressure drops. It works. Or if you use any other form of, of cannabis with any significant amount of THC, uh, it drops your, your eye pressure. And it works for about three hours, maybe four if you're lucky. So if you want to smoke you know, cannabis every four hours, I guess it would be somewhat effective, but I think that even most people that are, you know, general recreational or medicinal users of marijuana probably don't do that. Because, of course, that would include through the night. So, you know, you go say you go to bed at 10 o'clock. What do you do? Set your, set your alarm to wake up at 2 a.m., right? And then, and then wake up at 6, and if it's a weekend, you're going to sleep in. You wake up and have a little and go back to bed for another hour. I, I just don't think that of all the things that cannabis can do, this is probably not the best application for it. Uh, and again, it's not anything negative about cannabis as a thing. It's just this is a limitation. This is something that it, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, does it get you high? Well, depending on the type and et cetera, yeah, right? But you don't just stay high, do you? Well, it's it's it, it almost seems like, it's probably about twice the level of the time that it remains effective as giving you a high, it remains effective as lowering that pressure in your eyes, to me anyway. 
All right, so uh, with that, I've got a question for old Grouch, Tim Glantz, on uh, using CB radios. Hey, everybody, Tim Glantz from Old Grouch's Military Surplus here with an expert panel answer for Sean in Maine about CB radios. Sean writes in that he was lucky enough to get a moose tag this year up in Maine to go hunting, and everybody has recommended him that he get a CB radio to be able to talk to the truckers in his area on the logging roads and everything else. And I think that's an excellent idea because of all the ways to communicate with them, that's going to be the most universal out there, and there will be the most people listening, uh, especially in those areas with a lot of logging activity. Uh, CB radio is pretty simple to set up. You've got three basic components. got your radio, got your coaxial cable or coax that connects to the antenna, and you've got your antenna. On your radio... Uh, if you stick with any of the major brands like Midland, Uniden, or Cobra, uh, you probably can't go wrong. But uh, the two I've got personal experience and I'll recommend on the less expensive side, uh, about $45, $50 would be the Midland 1001 LXW. On the more expensive side, at about $100 would be the Cobra 29 LX. And if somebody looks both of those up, uh, one thing you'll notice they both have in common is that they both also receive NOAA weather radio. Uh, it's cheap to add, get that in your uh, CB. I mean, there's one there for 45 bucks that's got it. That's almost as cheap as a standalone weather radio. Uh, and it makes a whole lot of sense to have it in there because if you're out there where there's no cell phone service or everything else and you need to keep abreast of the weather, that will do it for you. Uh, the uh, coaxial cable, uh, don't scrimp on it. Get good quality stuff. Uh, look up the specs on it. Keep your run as short as possible. People will tell you, oh, for CB, it's got to be a certain length. Uh, it's an old wives' tale. Uh, unless you're doing uh, phased arrays with more than, you know, two antennas or more, the, the length does not matter uh, for the most part. So keep it as short as possible. You want soldered ends, not crimped ends. Soldered, soldered ends will not fail and get corrosion with vibration and use. Crimped ends will. Uh, so get soldered ends. If you're running your own length and putting your own ends, look on YouTube how to solder the ends, the SO239 and uh, PL259 connectors, and learn how to do it. It's easy. And uh, trust me, you want soldered ends on your coax cable. Your antenna, uh, Sean, since you sound like this is going to be possibly a temporary installation, I would recommend a K40. It's a mag mount. They've been making them for years. They've got a good reputation, and they're very easy to tune. Now, two things with setting this up. Uh, the first, when you wire it into your vehicle, uh, you can either wire it with a 12-volt tap off the fuse box or you can wire it direct to the battery. Go direct to the battery. Uh, you'll have less chance of getting ignition noise or interference from alternator wine or anything else with it that way. Uh, there should be an ignition sense wire in addition to the power and ground cable. You'll want to uh, use that to turn it on and off with your ignition but you want to run your power direct to the battery, and you want it fused right at the battery. Uh, that's important. Don't put the fuse all the way up by the radio. Put it back by the battery, because if you've got five feet or six feet of wire under the hood before the fuse, if you get a short before there, then the fuse is doing you no good. Uh, now, I mentioned tuning the antenna when I was talking about the K40. The antennas uh, have what's called standing wave ratio, and basically, uh, to keep it simple, that's a measurement of how effectively the antenna radiates the energy that your uh, CB puts out. Because when you transmit, that radio, that radio frequency energy, that le electromagnetic energy goes into the coaxial cable, into the antenna, and gets radiated out to the atmosphere. But unless you've got an absolutely perfect antenna that uh, doesn't really exist in the real world, 
some of that is not going to be radiated, and if it doesn't get radiated because the antenna is not perfectly resonant, it's going to come back into the radio. A little bit of that is okay, and we measure the ratio, uh, a standing wave ratio. Generally, it's considered anything 3 to 1 or lower is an acceptable one that won't damage your radio. Higher than that, you're either going to do one of two things. You're going to start damaging your radio, or some radios have a circuit in there that detects it and starts folding back the power, so it's going to cut itself back where it doesn't have any power, so it doesn't hurt itself. Either way, you don't want that. So you've got two options in doing your SWR. You can either take it to a CB shop where he's going to charge you 20, 25 bucks to tune it. Or you can go on Amazon for the same money or less and buy yourself an SWR meter, or standing wave ratio meter made for CBs and a short two to three foot coax jumper. So you can put this in line with your coax and you can do it yourself. Uh, you can look on YouTube. There's plenty of videos showing you how to measure your SWR and, and guides on how to do it. It's very easy to do. And all you do is you put your meter in line, you take your measurement, and then if it's not within the spec, you adjust your antenna to uh, make it longer or shorter. And usually on the K40, what it is is there are set screws in there, and you just move the whip up and down in the base, and you take the reading again. And if it went the wrong direction, then you move the direction opposite of what you did, and you just keep doing that, repeating, until you get it uh, as close to a one-to-one SWR ratio as you can on either channel 20 in the middle of the band or on the one channel you plan to use the most if you don't plan to use any other channels once you've done that you take that meter out of line run your run coax back into the back of the radio and you're good and there's two advantages of doing it this way number one uh you you now own that meter you own a new tool you've got it and that also is a power meter that can uh, make sure that your CB is still functioning. And it allows you to check this SWR every six months to a year because when antennas get beat on and get out in the weather and everything, they can fail and go bad, so you want to keep tabs on it. And number two, if you do it yourself, you just learned a new skill. So I highly recommend when you get the uh, radio, go ahead and get an SWR meter in the jumper and take a few minutes to learn how to do it and adjust your own SWR. Hope that helps. And if you got any other questions about choosing a radio or, or tuning your antenna or any of that, uh, you can look me up. My email's right on the website at oldgrouch.com. As always, everybody have a great day. And, Jack, as always, thanks for the great podcast. Great stuff from Tim Glantz, as always. And uh, I actually think that for many people, a CB radio is a, is a really good investment. And certainly um, in the context that, that, that this question was asked. Uh, my question today comes from Karen. And Karen says, would you please let us know your thoughts on gold and silver versus cryptocurrencies? Do you still recommend accumulating both? Should we think of them as similar or different? I'll admit that both feel unfamiliar and challenging to work into. Thanks. Well, I, I see them absolutely as different and having strengths that are actually very complementing to each other's weaknesses. So let's start with silver and gold. I've been on the air now since 2008. Um, this, this June was nine years of the Survival Podcast. I'm pretty sure within the first 30 episodes, first month of broadcasting, I said something to the effect of 5 to 10% of your net worth should be in precious metals, specifically silver and gold. And that not to just go out and do that all at once, that that would be something to work towards and allocate some investment over time And once you got there, then you simply, as your net worth increases, you continue to kind of rebalance that and keep about 5 to 
that that was a wealth assurance and wealth insurance program that if we had severe inflation or currency devaluation uh, or any kind of economic crisis, that made sense. It's what wealthy people uh, do. And that the, the ratios could be the same for us as they are for them because gold and silver are, are very much available in smaller units. And specifically silver, you know, with an ounce of silver, selling right now somewhere between 15 and 20 bucks. I don't even know what the price is. I didn't look it up for this or anything. But, you know, it's been in that range for quite a while. So anybody out there that, that, that wants to get into silver investing from a stacking standpoint can get a nice little firebox and start, start picking up a couple coins here and there. Uh, and, and, and maybe also if you, are, you know, if you run a business, specifically a business that has a product that's a service, doesn't have a hard cash outlay cost, You know, you can at least let customers know I'm willing to take, you know, payment in silver or partial payment in silver if you want to do that. And over time can begin to accumulate that store of wealth. And the same thing with gold. You can do that as well. And that that store of value, that store of wealth is then off grid and anonymous and transferable either to someone that you want to do business with. Or to heirs. And if you are smart about it, I mean, you can do that in such a way that there is no need for any record of that to exist ever. I mean, I look at it this way. As, as it, when I get old, and really old, and realize like my days are actually numbered. And if I haven't had any kind of financial crisis or something, haven't had to rely on what we have stored away, the people that I want to have that silver and gold, it will just become theirs. And that's between me and them and the fence post. And I'm not going to end up creating a taxable event for them, and, and it's just theirs. And because it's so fractionable that if somebody wanted to use a little, like, you know, if you wanted to get a thousand bucks, you can go get a thousand bucks, and the rest of it just still doesn't exist. And that's one of the main things. The other thing is, of course, it is a finite resource, there's only so much of it in reserves in the ground. Mining it and refining it takes energy, and it's always had value. Gold and silver have always been valuable as a commodity to mankind. They've been used as money, but make no mistake about it, gold and silver are not money, they are a commodity. One can coin money from gold and silver, but the underlying metal is simply a commodity, and that's how it should be viewed. Okay? And the big beauty in gold and silver is, much like cash, it is absolutely transferable from one person to another completely anonymously. That is a, is a huge strength for it. Now, its weaknesses. Its weaknesses are that if you want to actually convert a large amount of it at any one time into cash, there's a major giant paperwork thing that happens and um, you you are going to pay taxes on it. Now, you can claim that you bought it whenever you want to, and you can claim any basis for it you want to, and that's kind of you know something you can think about as well. But in the end, you're, 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 you're on, on the record as soon as you go to cash with it, unless you're selling it privately. All right? Um, and there are ways to do that too. But the, the, the thing that really is the weakness of gold and silver is it's, it's fine If I live next door to you and I make something that you like, that you buy frequently, let's say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a farmer, and um, 
you like doing business in silver, and I raise a couple turkeys for you every year for Thanksgiving time. And, uh, you know, it's 300 bucks for two turkeys, and you, yeah, that's, that's how much big turkeys can be worth, yep. Um, and you decide, you know, yeah, I'll do that. So you, you say, I want to give you $300 in silver. Well, you come get your turkeys, you give me $300 silver, you go on your way, that, that works fine. You know, it's, there's, there's no problem there. But, you know, I take silver for the member support brigade. And I know I would get more silver if you could send it to me the way you can buy stuff with PayPal. But you can't. And it doesn't work. There's been accounts set up with, you know, they'll move silver around or move gold around. And it, those things kind of defeat the purpose of what makes silver and gold so valuable anyway. A tangible asset in your hand that is, you know, you can take it any pawn shop and say, here's four ounces of silver. And they're going to pay you something around the current spot buy price. And they're going to be able to immediately look at it and go, yeah, that's real silver. And they know it's real silver and they'll pay you for it. And you have that in your possession, right? Cryptocurrency. Let, let's just specifically talk about Bitcoin and not worry about all the altcoins or even Ethereum right now. Just let's talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is digital gold in a way. Now, the, 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 the weakness of, of that statement is there are other cryptocurrencies. And it is possible that someone could innovate their way to be perceived and accepted as more valuable than Bitcoin. Okay? Bitcoin right now is higher per unit than gold. All right? So Bitcoin has, has made a case that one unit of Bitcoin is actually worth more than an ounce of gold. And the market has agreed with it for now. So you look at that and say, well, Bitcoin won. Well, Bitcoin didn't win. That's just how it is right now. But there will never be anybody that creates another substance that stands in for silver or gold. Silver does things in the medical and electronics industry that no other substance can really do, and so does gold, and gold is extremely scarce. If you actually look at how much gold there really is in the world that's actually you know known and above ground and refined, it's, it's a fairly scarce asset. The reason I say Bitcoin is digital gold is because we know what the reserve is, okay, 23 million, and it has to be mined with energy. And when we hit that limit, that's it. It is deflationary in nature. And it's, it's more scarce. It is more scarce than gold. That doesn't mean that it's worth anything. It has to have other things to make it worth something. Because I could create Spearco tokens tomorrow and say I'm only making 50, and, and everybody might go, yeah, I don't care. What does it do? The use case scenario from Brandon Todd, right? What does it do? Why do I care? You know, uh, so that in and of itself doesn't make the individual unit worth anything. You see people go on the pawn shops uh, show, right? The pawn star show all the time. Well, it's one of a kind, yeah, but nobody wants it, so I don't even want to buy it. So you understand, it's not just the scarcity; it has to function. So, what is Bitcoin's real value proposition? What makes it valuable? One thing that makes it valuable, for instance, is that if I want to send money to somebody in Japan, I can just do that in seconds. No banks, no intermediaries. It is not counterfeitable. Trust me, if they could counterfeit Bitcoins, it'd be done by now. It can't be done. It can't be counterfeited. So it's, it's, it's relatively fast payments anywhere in the world 
between any two parties, and it's relatively anonymous. Yes, once you have addresses and you can start tracing it with the address went to here or there, you can back and reverse engineer and figure out in, in some instances who did what to whom. But I mean, just something as simple as if two parties using Jack's wallets, every time you request money with a Jack's wallet, it gives you a new address. So you could have made 15 payments to me over a year, but they don't all go to the same address, and they don't all come from the same address. And that's just a very low-end piece of technology. And there's other options for that. So it can be relatively anonymous. Some other cryptocurrencies have come out with ways that make it pretty much completely anonymous, and either by choice or by design. But again, its big value is that it can be spent instantly. It can be used as currency, far better than gold and silver. And I believe that at some point in the future, the next time there's one of these major financial crises somewhere in the world, that lots of money will run into Bitcoin. It will be seen as a safe haven. And I think many millionaire and billionaire investors are actually starting to pay attention to crypto. And in the end, people understand that at least for now, Bitcoin is the store of value. That could, see, that's the thing. That could change. My big concern right now, and anybody that's informed about cryptocurrency, is headed to August 1st with this user-activated soft fork Sedgwick. We don't know what's going to happen. Now, I personally think that whatever happens, in the end, will be good. It will be good. We could end up with two Bitcoins. Bitcoin, Bitcoin Classic. Who the hell knows? That would be a little scary. And I think it would take a while to figure out, well, which one is going to be mainstream adopted? Just like Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Same type of thing. Well, in the end of the day, when they made that, that hard fork with Ethereum, the forked improvement that went forward is the one the whole market got behind. And Ethereum Classic's there, and it's got some value, but it's not really anything but another altcoin right now. Okay? So I think in the end, this will all flush itself out. I think there's a lot of money tied up in mining and in development and in products, etc., with Bitcoin. And it behooves everybody involved that, the, that the, the right solution be implemented. But there might be some fighting about it until that final decision is made. So that's why I personally am not holding much Bitcoin right now. Because I actually think there'll be a, a, a massive bloodletting leading up to or right around August 1st. And then at some point, it's going to become clear if there's a fork, which, one, which way to go. Or if there isn't a fork, or if there isn't a true forking where there's actually two Bitcoins. It's just, it goes the way it's best, way, best case scenario. That you'll see a rally like nothing you've ever seen before because now it's actually better. Now, you know, we can, we can reduce transfer fees, etc. Because the solution for Bitcoin is not trying to make it work where somebody can have it on a freaking, you know, the entire blockchain on a freaking MMC card or something. There is no problem, there is no problem at all with the blockchain being massive. There's no problem with that. That is actually not a problem. Now, speed of transaction, that's a problem. There is no need for you to heap the entire blockchain in your possession to use Bitcoin. But the, but the transaction speed is the problem. 
And what miners need to get through their thick skulls, and I think many have, but many haven't, and that's why this fight's going on, is that the more mining they do and the more transactions they process, the better. And they are better off making a very small amount on lots of transactions that go easily than making a big amount on a few transactions that go slow and hard. They need to think like gas stations. Pennies to the gallon, but we sell millions of gallons. Right? That's... That is the way forward, and the concept that somebody's setting up to do that type of operation might have to invest twenty or thirty thousand dollars. That is not a roadblock if somebody really wants to do it. It's not a problem. I don't want to hear people bitching about the fact that they can no longer slap together an old computer and effectively mine Bitcoin. I don't care. I don't care. That was, you know, that was eight years ago. This thing's matured. It was designed to get more difficult. It is exactly like gold in a way that when everybody headed to Sutter's Mill, they could pick gold nuggets up off the bottom of the creek, but that period only lasted for a time. It was designed that way. So how much of your income, I guess, would be the question, should you target for uh, cryptocurrency? I am a big believer in cryptocurrency right now because there are so many unknowns. Everybody should have a little, as long as you have some disposable income. To, to buy it with, and it is Vegas money. It is the same money that you would go to Las Vegas and play roulette with. If you wouldn't go play roulette with it, don't spend it on cryptocurrency. That actually doesn't mean that I think it's as risky as roulette. I really don't think it's as risky as roulette. But I think that that has to be like your litmus test. If Can I afford to lose this? And I wouldn't put the money that I put into Bitcoin on the roulette table. It's a metaphor. Why? I don't like gambling. I don't like casinos. I don't go to Vegas. So what I'm saying is more of a sentiment. This is money that, hey, if it explodes and goes away to zero, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be happy, but I'm not going to be upset. And the other side of it, there's a lot of room left to still be. I mean, really, we're still on the ground floor of this thing. But again. So people say, well, why did you come out of Bitcoin then? Because they don't know what's going to happen. And there could be two different chains. And if you get yeah, sure, if you go off, you know, off-chain storage, you'll be able to follow either one you want. Yeah, okay, fine. If I'm in cash or another crypto, once I've decided what I want to do, I can just go get more. It's not hard. So why... Why would I why would I take the risk? And then on the other side, I don't even think it's just a risk. I, I, I think it's going to be a major buying opportunity, and I want to have capital to capitalize on it with. And since all of the money that's there is pretty much money that I've made as an investor, the house is money. But I'm protecting it. I took it off the table for a while. And I'll decide how much goes back in and when. So I, I see them as very much the same and very, very different at the same time. And again, the, the, the beauty of gold and silver, physical, tangible, real asset that you can hold as scarcity and is universally accepted and known, okay, easily convertible to cash. But it sucks for buying stuff. It really does. It really sucks. I mean, even think about it for a large purchase. Let's say let's say using gold for a large purses, twenty thousand dollars to buy a a really good couple year old used truck. Do you want to carry that much gold around? But 
you know, once we sign the bill of sale, I just click, peak point, boom, bam, you got 20 grand in Bitcoin or Dash or whatever. And again, try to transfer $500 worth of silver to Tokyo. Easy to do with Bitcoin. Different instruments for different applications. That's the way to look at them. Hope that makes sense. Next up, I want to talk to you about the um, YouTube channel of the day uh, that I have um, selected for you. And uh, it is uh, Doug McCarty's YouTube channel. Um, Doug's gotten really well known in the last couple of years, that Forged in Fire show. Uh, he's one of the panel experts on or Fire Forged or something like that where the knife makers compete with each other. I wonder if Patrick Rorman has ever even thought about getting on that show. Uh, it'd be interesting to see him on there. Um, but I've been actually following Doug for quite a long time. It was actually Patrick that turned me on to Doug. And Doug is a Filipino martial artist. And, and I personally think in the world of you know online martial arts personalities and things like that, There is a, a lot of bullshit out there. Doug's the real deal. He's amazing. Um, he uh, he is, is definitely good at what he does. And he's good at explaining it, and he's good at teaching it. And he's never full of shit. And he's... He's really honest about, hey, like a lot of this stuff is just art that we practice for art's sake to learn, to develop coordination, to develop fitness, etc. Real combat is much more quick and, 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 and deadly and done. There's not a lot of this uh, really elegant stuff going along with it, but this elegant stuff is what enables the quick and the deadly. Doug's philosophy with, with a knife, as far as a weapon, is exactly the same as mine. When I, when I became totally sold on him is when I heard him say the words, your knife is your blade is meant to be felt, never seen. Because that's the truth. That's why I actually think that the knife is really the perfect bad guy's weapon. It really is. Because it is, it is a better tool for nefarious offense than it is for honest defense. That doesn't mean it's not good for it. It's just, that's the truth. It's much more effective as an ambush weapon. It's highly effective as an ambush weapon. It's also, you know, yeah, in the right situation with the right training, very effective as a defensive tool. However, in many situations, I think you're more likely to get in legal trouble, believe it or not, from cutting and stabbing somebody than from shooting them. So keep that in mind. But Doug doesn't just deal with blades. He deals with a lot of things. Uh, when Patrick first showed me his channel, he was showing me these, this one movement that he was doing, and he was kind of enamored by it. And I'm like, oh, I know how to do that. I learned how to do that when I was 11 years old. Um, so my roots in martial arts are very similar, and the, the, the style that I studied had a lot of elements when I was a kid um, of Filipino martial arts brought into them along with some other things that I don't really need to talk about. Doug's channel is awesome. Uh, and I think you, uh, you'd really enjoy it if you haven't checked it out yet. His uh, YouTube username is Kalisong1. Uh, Cal and um, again, I'll have a link in the show notes to Doug's YouTube channel. Really suggest checking it out. Next up, remember you can help support me in the work that I do by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. 
If you do that, you can uh, check out my Amazon product reviews. You can get on over and see the Amazon deals of the day. And as long as you're shopping, when you're online, as long as you're shopping through tspaz.com, what you do does help support the Survival Podcast. Um, I don't actually have an item of the day review put up for you guys today uh, because it is a, a double show day. I just didn't have time to do it. But just remember, whenever you do your online shopping, if you go to tspaz.com first, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings me to the song of the day. This is a song I'd never heard before, and I actually have only ever heard one song by this woman, and it was a duet with Reba McIntyre called Does He Love You? Uh, her name is Linda Davis. Uh, this song is called Company Time, and I think it was released somewhere in the early 2000s. And it's almost like a redo, like everything is new again when we redo it, right? Uh, it's, it, it very much kind of lines up with 9 to 5 from Dolly Parton in the 80s, if you remember that. You know, uh, don't be doing this stuff on company time and the woman being, you know, harassed by the end of it and things like that. And uh, what John Adams said when he sent me this one is that it's uh, another incentive to be your own boss, another incentive to be an entrepreneur. And I think that's true. And, and I do acknowledge that kind of being an employee sucks. But I would say, like, songs like this and sentiments like this, while there's some validity to them, there's also a reality that most people that have these sentiments, they never never sign the front side of a paycheck in their life. And, you know, frankly, if I'm paying you by the hour, then I expect you to be working. If I'm paying you by the project or I'm paying you commission, as long as you're not screwing anything up, I don't care what you do. And that's, that's reality. And whether you like it or not, that's reality. Why should I pay you to not work? I cannot pay you to not work, and I'm in the same boat. I'm actually better off, right? The only way I get any value in what I pay you is if you do things that benefit me. I can give you a job to be your friend. And, and that's not really to defend the corporatocracy. That's just a blunt reality. And that, folks, that, folks, really is the reason to develop entrepreneurship, to develop your own things, to create your own opportunities, or at least to get yourself into employment opportunities that are, like I said, you know, when I was in sales, as long as I was making quota or better, nobody really cared what I did. Nobody. I wanted to take a couple hours off to go see my son play basketball. No one cares. No one cares. 20% over your number? No one cares. You almost shoot somebody and they don't care. So think about that as you listen to this song, and I hope you have a great weekend and a great Friday. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
just turned two. Late last year, his daddy walked out, said, now it's all up to you. The sinner called, has to leave pretty soon. Ruthie asked her boss, would it be all right to go home this afternoon? Assistant to the chairman of the board And every morning On the speaker phone The chairman says Ruthie, you're driving me crazy Can we be alone? 